Hello and welcome to episode 5 in the Essex Court Chambers podcast series entitled 10 in 10. Last week I was joined by Alison McDonald QC and Jackie MacArthur and we discussed the case before the International Court of Justice of Gambia and Myanmar. This week uh, we move our attention back to commercial litigation and Russian litigation. I'm happy to be joined by Stephen Berry QC and David Walsh to discuss Fiona Trust. Fiona Trust is known for many things in the arbitration world and indeed in the commercial litigation world. It occupied many months of commercial court time in a very heavy trial that took place between the autumn of 2009 and the summer of 2010. Members of Essex Court Chambers appeared in virtually every stage of that litigation. Stephen Berry QC is one of the senior silks in Essex Court Chambers. By my reckoning, he has now been a silk for longer than he was a junior. The legal directories describe him as a very smooth and capable advocate, a fearsome cross-examiner, and a brilliant silk. He is said to be a brilliant trial lawyer and strategist. David Walsh is a junior member of Chambers, having joined in 2018 from Quadrant Chambers. He's described by the directories as super smart, a forceful advocate who seems to get the ear of the judge, and unflappable. Let's hope there's no flapping involved today. May I start, Stephen, by asking you briefly to outline what this case was all about? Yes, uh, it starts in the last years of the last century, and the key players uh, were Mr. Nikitin, who was my client. He was a marine engineer who became an oil trader, and within the oil trading business, he became the man in charge of chartering ships to carry the oil, and he became a substantial charterer with great familiarity with the shipping markets. Now, he made the acquaintance, the degree of acquaintance was a matter of controversy, but he made the acquaintance of a young politician called Mr. Skaga, and their acquaintance extended to Mr. Nikitin treating Mr. Skaga to holidays, skiing holidays and sunny holidays in the Mediterranean once or twice a year. Now, he, as I say, was a politician. And in about 2002, his faction was on the up. So he was elected to the Duma, and he was appointed to be head of Sovkomflot, which was one of the two relevant Russian state shipowning companies at quite a young age. And Fiona Trust, the eponymous Fiona Trust, was the main holding company of Sovkomflot. And of course, being the head of a shipowning company and having had not a huge amount of shipping experience, he came to take the advice of and start to rely on his old acquaintance, Mr. Nikitin. And there was the rub. Um, the third main player was a Mr. Privalov, who was a chartering manager for Sovcomflot in London. I say chartering manager, but he was involved in many other aspects of their business as well. And the fourth key player was Mr. Ismailov, who was Mr. Skaga's um, counterpart in the other significant Russian state shipowning company, which was Novoship. And essentially what, what happened was that Mr. Skaga started doing, well, Mr. Skaga's Sovcomflot through subsidiary companies, started doing business with Mr. Nikitin through his subsidiary companies, and that was se selling ships to Mr. Nikitin and long-term time chartering ships to Mr. Nikitin or his companies. 
And Mr. Ismailov started doing business with Mr. Nikitin by long-term time charters to him. Now, the key events, you could say, were the Chechen war, because the result of the Chechen war was that Mr. Skaga's political faction uh, lost influence in the place that matters. And as a result, Mr. Skaga was removed from the Duma as a member of parliament and ousted as the director general of Sovcom Flot. And at the same time, there were similar moves against Mr. Ismailov. And consequence on, in effect, the change of faction came allegations of serious dishonesty against Mr. Skaga and Mr. Ismailov, the essence of which was that uh, they and Mr. Nikitin, or each of them and Mr. Nikitin, had conspired to steal money, fleece money from the uh, Russian state in the shape of the two shipowning companies. Now, the the core dishonesty allegations, um, I, I have to radically oversimplify here, and that's because almost every act or statement by either party was alleged by the other to be dishonest. The Sovcom flot allegation and the Novoship allegation essentially was that the whole of Mr. Nikitin's business with Mr. Skaga on the one hand and Mr. Ismailov on the other was a complete conspiracy to take money out of Russia. And conversely, Mr. Nikitin's defense and Mr. Skaga and Mr. Ismailov's defense uh, was that the whole case against Nikitin and Skaga and Nikitin and Ismailov was a dishonest political fabrication in order to achieve political advantage in Russia and also at the same time um, collect a few hundred million, which uh, Mr. Nikitin had justly. And there were Mr. Nikitin, Mr. Skaga and Mr. Ismailov fled to England. There were various extradition and asylum proceedings, but they stayed in England. And um, essentially, for example, there were allegations that all of the evidence or much of the evidence of Sovcom flot had been obtained illegally. I, I summarise, basically everything anyone did in this case was illegal, dishonest, according to the other side. However, to pair it back to what's legally central, there were essentially three categories of dishonest scheme, which covered well over 100 separate individual transactions. The first category was that the deals between Mr. Nikitin and Sovkonflot through Skaga and Novoship through Ismailov were produced by dishonest bribery by Mr. Nikitin of Skaga and Ismailov, and therefore the purchases by Nikitin from Sovkonflot of ships, the charters received by Mr. Nikitin from Sovkonflot of ships, and the charters received by Nikitin from Ismailov of ships were all tainted by that bribery. Now, the dishonest bribery was in essentially two categories. Firstly, it was alleged that millions of dollars were paid to offshore accounts for the benefit of Skaga and Ismailov. But secondly, in case that was not provable, uh, it was said that Mr. Nikitin bribed Mr. Skaga and Mr. Ismailov by taking them on flash and expensive holidays, and that itself was a sufficient bribe. And it's important to note here the quantum aspect of those allegations. The allegation was that these bribes had procured soft deals, but the quantum was not measured by the softness of the deal, by the profit that Mr. Nikitin accrued from the deals. 
So, for example, just to take one of the many, many transactions, there was a case in which the bribery was said to have procured Mr. Nikitin a new building for 50 million, whereas the true value of that new building at the time it was acquired by Nikitin's company was between 52 and 54. So if you like, the quantum of the softness or the cheapness was two to four million. But in fact, some months later, the market boomed, as we all remember, all of us who do shipping cases, the market boomed. And Mr. Nikitin sold that new building before actually taking delivery of it for 80 million. So he made a profit on that one transaction of $30 million. And the consequence, if that deal had been procured by bribery, and if the claim had succeeded on that basis, would have been a claim for a count of profits of the 30 million, not damages for the two to four million. And in that way, the quantum of those main deals, allegations, got up to about 800 million US dollars. The second category of dishonesty, uh, and this was confined to Sofcom plot, was that Mr. Nikitin and Mr. Skaga had conspired to skim or appropriate commissions on sale and purchase deals with entirely innocent third parties. So this allegation was that when Sofconflot bought or sold a ship from some third party out in the market, the broker, Clarkson on New Buildings and Galbraith on Second Hands, would charge, say, 1.5% commission. But of that 1.5%, the majority usually say 1%, was in fact paid to Mr. Nikitin, and Sofconflot alleged that, that was for the benefit of him and Skaga. So this was conspiracy by Nikitin and Skaga to skim commissions from the broker, who was said dishonestly to have paid back commissions to Nikitin and Skaga. Now, the third allegation was a watered-down version of the commission skimming allegation, and that was that if Mr. Skaga was not a recipient of these skimmed commissions, then nevertheless, Mr. Nikitin and Mr. Privilov in London were the recipients. So this was a Skaga not involved dishonesty allegation, but an allegation to that Mr. Nikitin, Mr. Privilov and Clarkson in London had a dishonest scheme to take much of the commission that Clarkson was charging to Sofconflot. And the third variation was, in effect, Mr. Nikitin skimming commissions in deceit of and behind Mr. Skaga's back. So, so those were the essential allegations and the essential setup. And as we know, this uh, dispute produced various strands of litigation at different phases and in different dimensions. And David, could you perhaps give us an overview of that aspect? Certainly, Stephen. There were essentially three main strands to the litigation before the courts. One strand was a dispute about the scope of the arbitration clause in eight charter parties that were alleged to have been procured by Mr Nikitin's bribery. Uh, the, the owners had purported to rescind these charters and commenced court proceedings to seek declarations that they had validly done so. Uh, the charterers applied for a stay under Section 9 of the Arbitration Act 1996, saying that the matter should have been, in resol been resolved in arbitration 
because the court action involved a dispute arising under this charter and that was caught by uh, those words in the arbitration clause uh, in the Sheltime 4 form. Another strand was the main liability trial, which involved the uh, dishonesty allegations that Stephen Berry has just outlined, um, including as a gate, uh, part 20 claims that were brought against uh, the shipbrokers in respect of their involvement. And the third strand uh, surrounded the freezing injunctions that were obtained against Mr Nikitin, first back in 2005 and then again in 2007. And this strand itself generated no fewer than eight reported judgments, uh, the main aspect of which related to the enforcement of the cross-undertaking in damages as a result of the freezing order. Uh, after the main trial, the claimants had to accept that the freezing orders had been wrongly made because they were made in respect of certain claims that had failed. And uh, I know we're going to come back to this, but the, the litigation in respect of that cross undertaking and the damages uh, claimed as a consequence uh, of the freezing order having been wrongly made uh, ended up going up to the Court of Appeal. Well, let's have a look at each of those in turn. Let's start with the dispute about the scope of the arbitration clause. That's obviously something that went to the House of Lords and produced a very well-known and enduring decision. And David, could you just help us with that, please? So as I've already alluded to, the issue was whether claims to rescind the charter parties fell within the scope of the arbitration clause. Uh, the owners said that they did not, and that the charterers said that they did, and applied for a stay of the High Court proceedings in favour of arbitration. At first instance, Mr Justice Morrison refused the stay, uh, but the Court of Appeal reversed that and granted it. Uh, the owners appealed, and the appeal was dismissed by the House of Lords. In other words, uh, agreeing with the Court of Appeal, the House of Lords thought that the High Court proceedings were caught by the arbitration clause, and the rescission claims should be resolved by the arbitrators. The reasoning of the House of Lords, uh, Lord Hoffman giving the lead judgment, um, was firstly that the construction of an arbitration clause should start from the assumption that the parties, as rational businessmen, were likely to have intended any dispute arising out of the relationship into which they had entered, or purported to enter, to be decided by the same tribunal. This is known as the uh, so-called one-stop shop. As such, the House of Lords thought that it would require very clear language before a court would decide that rational businessmen intended to have questions of the validity or enforcement of the contract decided by one tribunal and questions about its performance uh, decided by another. And the, their lordships concluded that there was no such language in the Shell Time form arbitration agreement. Secondly, uh, the House of Lords uh, relied upon Section 7 of the Arbitration Act 1996, which states that an arbitration agreement is separate and not invalid just because the agreement of which it is a part is invalid or ineffective. Uh, and that meant that even if the owner could rescind the charter parties, it didn't follow that the arbitration agreements would automatically fall uh, away as well. Essentially, the arbitration agreements had to be treated as separate and distinct and could only be void or voidable on grounds 
which related directly to the arbitration agreement. In the case that was being considered, uh, it, it was being alleged that the main agreement was in uncommercial terms, which, together with the other surrounding circumstances, gave rise to the inference that uh, an agent for the owner was bribed to consent to the charters. But that did not show that he was bribed to enter into the arbitration agreement. Uh, the owner said that but for the bribery, the owner wouldn't have entered into the charter at all, and therefore wouldn't have entered into the arbitration agreement. But the House of Lords said that this was exactly the kind of ar argument uh, which Section 7 of the 1996 Act uh, was designed to prevent. And th thirdly, for good measure, the House of Lords made plain that their approach to uh, construction and separability in no way infringed the owner's right uh, of access to the court uh, under Article 6 of the European Convention of the Right to a Fair Trial. And this was essentially because the arbitration was based on uh, agreement and parties can, by agreement, waive the right of access to a court. So the net result of all of this was that the courtroom proceedings in relation to the rescission of the charters uh, remained stayed. And uh, I suppose that's a good point for me to ask Stephen Berry um, what, uh, what happened next in the arbitration to the extent he can, he can tell us. Yes, can I can I just elaborate a bit on what David has just said about the arbitration stay? This this was quite an extreme example of as were well, the the all or nothing nature of Section Nine of the Act. Now I caveat um, what I'm about to say by the fact that at this stage I was not instructed. Uh, my predecessors then in. Uh, in the saddle for Mr. McKeaton were the late lamented Mr. Pollock and uh, for other matters, uh, Mr. Hamblin, as he then was. Uh, so they went a long way downhill uh, to instruct me after that. But um, the interesting thing about that stay application, which was thought to be a good idea at that time, was that the ship owning claimants, the Sovconflot subsidiary claimants, were defendant were claimants in the commercial court action alleging bribery against Mr. Nikitin personally, and therefore, whether or not there was a stay of the charter party claims, the charter party claimants, the Sovconflot One Ship owning companies, were necessarily going to remain in the high court commercial court action as claimants in tort against Mr. Nikitin, with whom they didn't have an arbitration contract, asserting the very same bribery allegations as in the charter party arbitrations. And conversely, the Nikitin chartering defendant companies were in the commercial court, irretrievably in the commercial court, as defendants to the allegations of bribery by Sovconflot, the parent of the shipowning companies, uh, for their allegations in tort of bribery against the chartering companies with whom they didn't have an arbitration contract. Now, that raised at the time questions of uh, reflective loss and so on, which were not then resolved. I am told that they are now resolved, but I haven't read that judgment in Marek's from the Supreme Court. But the point for present purposes is that notwithstanding the arbitral stay, both the claimants in the arbitration remained in the commercial court actively prosecuting 
the very same bribery allegations as were in the arbitration, but stayed. And the defendants were actively in the commercial court trial defending the very same bribery allegations uh, that were in the arbitration as stayed. So it's, it's, a, it's a stark example of uh, the, the, the all or nothing effect of an arbitration clause and the arbitration stay. And it might be asked, why did the charterers apply for a stay when everything was going to have to be uh, tried in the commercial court anyway between exactly the same parties, albeit without this one link uh, of this one claim in the charter party arbitration? And the answer may be that it was thought arbitration before a commercial tribunal would have a better understanding of chartering practices and why they were or weren't dishonest. Anyway, that's water under the bridge. The point is that after the end of the trial and all the appeals and all the uh, consequential proceedings, the arbitration was revived. And these claims were revived on the basis that they had not uh, been decided or they had not all been decided as between the parties to the arbitration. And that required um, some very interesting submissions about the law of issue estoppel, res judicata and the like, and the question of what the act- judge had actually decided relevant to the rescission claims. And unfortunately, I can't tell you the result because an award was produced and it wasn't appealed. Um, but it does show the beauty of stays in arbitration. Thank you for that account of what took place. And obviously, as many all know, the impact of the doctrine of separability and Section 7 of the Arbitration Act is a matter that's uh, being considered by the Supreme Court as we speak in the Enker and Chubb case. And that's a case we hope to feature in this podcast series later on. Now, let's turn to the main liability trial in Fiona Trust. And bearing in mind, that's going to require us to, to summarise what was on any view an epic piece of um, commercial court litigation. Stephen, you were involved along with other members of chambers and you've told us what those central allegations are. Maybe we can start with the results in that trial, which was before Mr Justice Andrew Smith. Yes, um, in short, Mr Nikitin and Mr Skaga and Mr Nikitin and Mr Ismailov won on the main allegation of dishonest bribery by paying millions of dollars to procure soft sales and uh, soft charter parties. And they won that essentially because, despite searching high and low, uh, the claimants, the Sofgan, Flot and Novaship claimants, couldn't actually produce any evidence of any bank accounts associated with Skaga or Ismailov, which received any money out of the ordinary at all. And also because the particular deals, and this took up a vast amount of the trial, but the particular deals which were said to be soft and cheap were found by the judge, while to be on the good side for Mr. Nikitin, not actually to be out of the ordinary or suspiciously cheap or soft or both. And they only looked so good because of the hindsight supplied by the subsequent mega boom in the market. So on the essential bribery allegation, paying millions of dollars for soft deals, uh, Nikitin, Skaga and Ismailov won. But the judge, secondly, found that Mr. Nikitin had innocently bribed Mr. Skaga, although not Mr. Ismailov, by taking him on holiday. 
Now, in the forensic exigencies of the case, that didn't actually change the result because for various sound tactical reasons, Sovcom Flot had only pursued its bribery allegations against Mr. Mikitin and Mr. Skaga on the basis that they had to prove dishonesty in the paying and the receipt of the bribes. They abjured their claim based on innocent bribery. And Mr. Justice Andrew Smith found that whilst these holidays qualified as common law bribes, they were neither paid nor received dishonestly. And so, as I say, for the tactical reasons for which the case had been confined to dishonesty, that finding of bribery did not produce a judgment. Now, thirdly, on the conspiracy allegations against Nikitin and Skaga for skimming commissions through the London brokers, the judge found in favour of uh, Mr. Nikitin and Mr. Skaga that there was no such conspiracy. But fourthly, on the watered-down variant of that, the judge found that Mr. Nikitin and Mr. Privilov had indeed dishonestly conspired with the London brokers to skim commissions, in effect, behind Mr. Skaga's back. And so Sovconflot won that part of the case. Uh, They secured a a multi-million dollar judgment against Mr. Nikitin. They had previously settled with the brokers who had paid tens of millions to settle that allegation. And obviously, they would have got judgment against Mr. Privilov, but Mr. Privilov had previously settled with them and paid after having been seized at Geneva Airport and taken back to Moscow, within a very short while of which he uh, recanted all his denials of liability, admitted liability, gave a 270-page witness statement saying that he and Nikitin and Skaga had done it and gave evidence at the trial. Uh, but that part of the case, Nikitin lost and Sovconflot won. That is a very, very, very thin summary of very, very many findings. And I think uh, it's fair to say that what Mr. Justice Andrew Smith found on the facts was that almost all of the major witnesses, including um, my client, uh, but including all the star witnesses for the uh, Sovconflot, such as their current director general and ex-minister of transport, Mr. Frank, they'd all told what can proverbially or colloquially be called a pack of lies. There were two honourable exceptions. There were were a number of exceptions, but two spring to mind. Firstly, Mr. Ismailov uh, was acquitted of lying. And indeed, Mr. Ismailov and Mr. Nikitin had had no real previous relationship. And on one view of the case, controversial, but on one view of the case, Mr. Ismailov was only brought in because he had done deals with Mr. Mr. Nikitin that were similar to the deals that Mr. Skaga had done with Mr. Nikitin. And so for consistency, uh, the, the Russian state had to say, well, as the deals that Skaga did with Nikitin were dishonest, so also must the deals that Ismailov did with Nikitin have been dishonest. And the second uh, honourable exception was the in-house lawyer and a member of the board of Sovkoflot, a gentleman called Mr Lipka, who produced a witness statement that supported to the full uh, the, the Sovkoflot case. But when he came to give evidence... His evidence bore no real relation to his witness statement. 
and um, was full of things saying, yes, well, of course, this was uh, a good deal properly considered on its merits inside um, the board of Scotland. Well, so he was, all, but apart from that, an awful lot of lying. Now, you mentioned what that was the result in brief. Can I just cover the result in legal terms in relation to what I would describe as uh, big points on the English law of bribery. And I think there were five, I think, big points on the English law of bribery, which were confirmed or held by Mr. Justice Andrew Smith and not disturbed on the appeal in this case. And although I haven't checked up to date, I think this is still all substantially good law. The first point to note, as I've adverted to previously, is that the English tort of bribery can be committed innocently. So the briber can innocently pay the bribe, the bribee can innocently receive the bribe, and nevertheless, it can still amount to the tort of bribery in English law. And that's because the definition of a bribe is simply payment or promise of a benefit to somebody who is in fact in an agency position, which is not disclosed to the principal. There is no requirement of dishonesty, either objective or subjective. As I've said before, in this case, the judge found that the holidays were innocent bribes. The second point is the low bar for the test of what is a bribe. It is the conferring or the promise of a benefit which gives rise to a possibility of a conflict of interest. Or put another way, something that may create a conflict. It doesn't have to actually create a conflict. It doesn't have to actually influence anything. Because once a benefit is promised or conferred that gives rise to a possibility of a conflict of interest, then corruption is presumed in English law. The third element is what I might call the once incentivized, always incentivized point, which was a, a phrase repeated many times by leading counsel for Sofcom Plot at the trial. Um, and that is that once a bribe, as I've defined above, has been paid or offered, it doesn't have to be paid, offered is good enough, and there is a real possibility of conflict, then that real possibility continues until such time as, in fact, the possibility has disappeared. So the effect of a bribe is not confined to any particular transaction in respect of which it might or might not have been paid or offered. If you pay, a, pay or promise a bribe on day one, that vitiates all subsequent transactions in which the agent and the principal are involved. As, um, as one of the witnesses put it, so the one ice cream theory, if you offer now one ice cream might be too small to create a, a risk of conflict. But if once a bribe is offered on day one, then its effect is persistent. And that was important in this case, because if a bribe had been showed before or about the time of transaction one, it was said by Sovconflot to affect all the hundred plus transactions that Mr. Nikitin did with these companies over a period of about three years. Now, the fourth big point uh, of, of the, the reach of the English law of bribery is as to the nature of the benefit. 
the benefit doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be, it's not confined to any particular form of benefit. And it includes benefits for which full consideration is given by the bribee. For example, offering somebody a job is a benefit, even though when the job is uh, undertaken, the employee does the work and the price for that work is a proper price. Doesn't matter. Uh, uh, any benefit will do, even if good consideration is given for, for the bribee. And, and the fifth point to note about the reach of the English law of bribery is the remedies. Uh, the, the principle here, Sovkonflot, can elect as between compensation, both in equity and at common law, but also in equity can elect for an account of profits. And that includes, this was controversial, but Mr. Justice Andrew Smith decided it and it's been affirmed since, that includes an account of profits both of the bribed fiduciary, Mr. Scargo in this case, and he made no profits, and the bribing um, tort fees of Mr. Nikitin. And of course, that was essential in this case because as illustrated by the example I gave earlier on, the actual quantum of any loss to Sotcomplot was relatively limited. Uh, I say relatively limited, you know, a, a few tens of millions. The, the real jackpot here was the account of profits that Mr. Nikitin made by having these ships and the options to renew, uh, to buy ships and the charter parties and the options to renew them in a market that boomed. That's what got you to 800 million. So uh, in principle, uh, taking Mr. Skaga on one holiday created a possible conflict of interest in 2002 would have the legal, innocently, would have the legal effect of an account of profit for 800 million on deals done over the ensuing three-year period. And to coin the phrase of a comedian, I would say not a lot of people know that. <laughs> I would add that in, in a subsequent edition of the Nikitin Novoship saga, a case called Novoship against Mikhailiuk, uh, another part of, of, of this battle, which we're not even touching on here, Mr. Nikitin was initially held liable for $150 million um, of the profits on Novoship charters because of what was said to be a bribe of $100,000 to a different London agent from Novoship for Novoship, not Mr. Privilov. But the Court of Appeal reversed that on the basis that when awarding an account of profits, there were limits of causation and proportionality, which on the facts of that particular case uh, ruled out that award of an account of profits for the, that 150 million. So th this, this point that for even innocent bribery, you can get an account of profits for hundreds of, hundreds of millions is subject to, to qualifications as to proportionality and causation. David, the third limb of the litigation that we discussed up front was the freezing injunction aspects, and that had some consequential stages post-trial. Could you just explain those to us, please? Yes, certainly. The Freezing injunctions, as I've mentioned, were found to have been uh, wrongly obtained, or at least wrongly obtained in, in terms of the amounts uh, that they covered. The freezing orders contained the usual cross-undertaking 
in damages given by the applicant in case it is later found that the respondent uh, has suffered loss by reason of the freezing order having been wrongly made. Uh, so uh, Nikitin and his companies applied to Mr Justice Mayles for an inquiry as to the damages suffered as a consequence of the freezing order. And, and they argued that they had suffered substantial losses because the uh, funds used to provide the security uh, for the 2005 freezing order, together with a portion of the funds uh, caught by a later 2007 freezing order, uh, would have been used to commission uh, new vessels, which would have been sold, uh, earning significant returns. Uh, in the alternative, they said the funds would have been invested uh, and earned substantial returns. The claimant said in response that these claims were, were speculative, these claims of damages were speculative, and that the uh, order for an inquiry as to damages should be set aside, either because it was obtained uh, by fraud on the part of the defendants or because the uh, the court retained a discretion to withhold an equitable remedy. But these submissions were rejected by Mr Justice Mayles. He said that the uh, requirements for setting aside an inquiry into the losses suffered on the grounds of fraud were not satisfied in respect of the 2005 order. And uh, although there was a strong argument that the inquiry into damages as a result of the 2007 order was obtained by fraud, uh, in the end, that didn't matter because the uh, Nikitin parties had uh, not had, had failed to establish any loss was suffered as a result of that order. Uh, albeit they had they had satisfied uh, that there was a loss in respect of the two thousand and five order. And in terms of quantum, uh, Mr. Justice Mayles said that a uh, called a liberal assessment of damages should be adopted. And and what he meant by that was not that all the rules went out the window, but that the court had to recognise that the assessment uh, of damages suffered as a result of a freezing order would often be inherently imprecise exercise because the defendant could not say precisely what he would have done with the funds but for the freezing order. Uh, and the reason that he was in that difficulty uh, was essentially because the claimant had obtained an, an injunction to which uh, it was not entitled. And so it, it wasn't an answer for a claimant to say that damages couldn't be awarded because the defendant's business ventures were to some extent speculative or, uh, and or might have resulted in, in, in a loss, not a profit. And a defendant was not absolved from proving uh, its damages, but uh, those factors which I've just mentioned certainly had to be borne in mind in determining whether it had discharged the burden of proof um, in doing so. Uh, Mr Justice Mayle said that the correct approach was to ask whether the Nikitin parties had proved to a sufficient standard that uh, the trading would have been profitable. And if so, uh, the court could then make uh, the best assessment of damage that it could, applying, if necessary, a discount uh, to reflect whatever uncertainty existed. In the end, the, uh, the, having conducted the inquiry, the judge found that the funds which were lodged uh, as security in the solicitor's account following the discharge of the 2005 order would have been used to finance a shipbuilding programme and awarded damages uh, of nearly $60 million plus interest. Uh, this judgment was upheld by the Court of Appeal, uh, and their lordships there emphasised that essentially the same principles apply when suing on the cross-undertaking in damages as would apply in a claim for damages for breach of contract. 
like Mr Justice Males, the Court of Appeal um, also rejected the argument that the Nikitin parties had failed to uh, mitigate their loss and damage uh, by a uh, not applying to the court um, for the release of funds from the security undertaking in order to make ship purchases. Uh, the Court of Appeal recognised that orders for variation of a freezing order are often far from straightforward and that therefore this didn't uh, provide a basis for reducing the damages awarded uh, on the cross undertaking. Stephen, perhaps we could finish with you just summarising for us what you regard as the, the legal legacy of the Fiona Trust litigation. Certainly. Um, start at the end, really, with that, uh, the, the cross undertaking. There were, I think, three interesting points on that, which will probably govern such applications in the future, especially ones for hundreds of millions of dollars, as this was. The, the, the first is that there was an initial discretion to order or not to order an inquiry. And that had initially been exercised by Mr. Justice Andrew Smith in favour of an inquiry. And he was very close to refusing an inquiry on the basis that he had found widespread dishonesty by Mr. Nikitin, albeit not on the main charge, and that he had brought on himself freezing order type relief by conducting dishonest dealings. And, and what probably made the difference in that instance was that Softenflot had not merely not succeeded at trial, which is usually itself a sufficient reason for an inquiry, but that they had committed culpable misrepresentation and non-disclosure when getting the injunctions themselves. So the first point is that there is a discretion not to order inquiry on the basis of misconduct by the applicant. The second point David mentioned, which is that at the end of the day, however much it's equitable and discretionary, the court is likely to apply normal uh, damages rules. And um, the third point is that in many cases, the ordinary course of business exception in freezing orders will prevent an applicant saying, this freezing order destroyed my business. That was not so in this case for a number of reasons, but the particular one was that this freezing order was partly proprietary so that the money could not be used in the ordinary course of business. And that is a quirk which may well mean that the award, I think it was nearly 70 million in this case, the, the award in this case of sums of that nature for in effect destroying a business are likely to be quite rare. Now, more widely than that, I, I think for the, the legal legacy is that clarification of those various points of bribery. But I think the forensic legacy is that this trial was an early mega trial dealing with the age of email. And um, it illustrated a number of points, which I'll, I think I'll just summarize. I mean, the first is that disclosure and trial bundling in such cases is a total nightmare. It's almost unmanageable. The court has since done uh, quite a lot, lots of protocols and the like. But in that trial, it was almost unmanageable. I remember the judge saying in closing that it, he's, he did a, a short count and he worked out that over 90% of the documents actually referred to in the 88-day trial had not been in the trial bundles on day one. 
because documentation came in. It was about 3,000 documents a week for the first few months of trial. The second is that mega trials like this are, are subject to the sheer exhaustion factor, and that is uh, mental and physical. And the only cure for that is adequate resourcing. You might say over-resourcing. But essentially, you need multiple teams of lawyers to deal with different parts of, of, of the different cases. Um, you need an interlocutory team. You need a, a trial team. You need a team against defendant A. You need a team against defendant B. Otherwise, it's just unmanageable. And the third thing, I, I suppose, overall is um, whether a mega trial like that is actually a good idea or whether, conversely, the court should try and split it up into more bite-sized chunks. Now, it wasn't possible in this case for various reasons. And uh, I have to say, the judge, Mr. Justice Andrew Smith, did an amazing job of keeping it on track. But that kind of mega trial can easily go off track. Uh, I think... Those are the retrospective lessons that stick in my mind 10 years after the event about what I learned from that, other than also being a great reluctance to be involved with that kind of trial again. Well, that's very frank of you. And of course, the person that's often forgotten in these enormous trials is the judge himself or herself who carries the burden of processing all of that. I would endorse that, and I would say... I mean, the judge was working during that trial and after it probably more than any of the lawyers on the case without any assistance, uh, surrounded by a sea of bundles. And uh, it, it's, it's close to being too much to bear. Well, thank you very much, uh, Stephen and David, for those insights into the Fiona Trust litigation. It's not easy to summarise something on that scale pithily, uh, but I thank you both for having done so today. Uh, do join me next week when I'll be speaking to Hugh Mercer QC, Professor Dan Sarushi QC, and we'll be talking about the two Supreme Court decisions in the Brexit-related challenges brought by Gina Miller. Thank you to everyone who's listened today, and thank you to everyone who sent feedback on this podcast series, which we truly appreciate. I'd also like to give my thanks to Akash uh, Sonetchat, one of the junior tenants in Chambers for his research that's assisted me on this one, and Lucy Smith in the production. I am Stephen Houseman. It's been my pleasure to be your host on this podcast. <laughs>